The passage of scripture that we will be considering this morning is found in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this morning we'll be looking at verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 5 of chapter 2. Please give your careful attention to God's holy and errant word. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Last week, my oldest brother forwarded me to me one of those kind of reminiscing on the good old days kind of emails that you get once in a while, from, especially from older people. And this one was kind of bemoaning the fact that some of the popular slang words and phrases of his youth had been lost in contemporary culture, had changed so much since he was young, and these words weren't, phrases weren't being used anymore. Now, you have to understand that my oldest brother is 18 years older than I am. So we really grew up in different generations, so to speak. And so as I was scanning down the list of phrases that he was lamenting that weren't still in the culture anymore, I couldn't help but chuckle. There were phrases on there like, heavens to Murgatroyd, or heavens to Betsy, or gee willikers, or jumping Jehoshaphat. And terms like juke joint and jalopy and nincompoop. Now, 
I have to admit, I had heard all those words and phrases before, but I wouldn't have been caught dead using any of them in my generation. Those words were not cool in my crowd. But that's one word of slang that tends to stick with us, isn't it? The word cool. Every generation seems to adopt it to one degree or another, the word cool. Matter of fact, I did a little internet research this week to say, where'd that word come from? How far back does it go as a slang word for what it means today? And it goes back at least to the early parts of the 20th century. It goes back actually to the African-American culture, and especially the African-American culture that centered around the jazz clubs, the jazz culture. Cool cat was uh, the uh, person to be in your your culture, if you were part of that jazz scene. What does it mean? Did you ever try to define the word cool, the way it's used in culture? It kind of means socially gifted. You know, somebody that's likable, somebody you want to be around. It means fashionable, you know, in terms of how you dress and carry yourself and cut your hair. It means fun to be around, somebody who's the life of the party, maybe. But really, when it comes down to it, I think what the word cool, the best uh, synonym for it, I would say, is admirable. Somebody who's cool is somebody who you want to be like. Or if you can't be like them, you want to be associated with them. You want to sit at the cool table and hang out with the cool kids. That drive in us for acceptance that 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 alludes to, that drive for acceptance, that drive for approval is universal and it's relentless in our fallen nature. And that is a powerful drive. That drive to be seen as cool has led to much slavery to sin and destruction. In this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I really think that that's what Paul is addressing, is that inner drive to be accepted, to be admired, to be thought well of. The craving for approval was what was at the root, I think, Paul sees here as the divisions that we saw. We looked at last week how the Corinthian church was split in so many ways. It had so many different types of division within it. And I think Paul here is tracing part of that divisiveness to the sin of wanting to measure up to the wrong standards, to the standards of the world, to be accepted. And he addresses an area of life that is actually kind of interesting to me. And I think it's very relevant to us here in a university culture, in a town with a major university, because he addresses what I would call intellectual and philosophical coolness. Now, that's actually an interesting change in culture since I was young. I mean, when, when I was young, it tended to be the athletes or the cheerleaders or the partiers who were the cool crowd, depending on how you defined it and, that, and what crowd you were striving to be accepted by. But if you were a nerd, that was one of the lowest put-downs you could put on anybody. But that's really changed in the culture now in the days of Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs. Now... Being really intelligent is seen as cool. And so I think it helps us maybe even to understand the Corinthian culture a little better because in Corinthian culture, that was really important, that you be respected for your wisdom by the world's standards. 
The Corinthian culture was fascinated with knowledge and wisdom and philosophy. Matter of fact, there was a Greek historian named Herodotus who lived about 500 years before the time of Christ and the time of Paul. And Herodotus said this about Greek culture. Of course, Greek culture became the basis for Roman culture later. He said this, he said, all Greeks are zealous for every kind of learning. They had high esteem for highly intelligent people that were skillful orators. And that was kind of a a sport in that culture to embrace one of these teachers, philosophers, scholars, to follow him closely, for him to be your hero. Matter of fact, we know this culture from Acts chapter 17. You remember back then it says that Paul went to Athens, which was the center of learning for the Greek culture. And you remember he went to Mars Hill. And he had the courage to stand on Mars Hill among all the popular teachers and philosophers of the day and to preach the gospel. And you remember how they first responded to him. They said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? They were fascinated, curious. They always wanted to hear something new. Matter of fact, Luke actually explains this in detail. He says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So to challenge the thought of the day and come up with some new philosophy or some new idea, some new wisdom. And so that's what Paul wants to address in this passage. In order for us to understand what Paul's saying, I think you need to understand the distinction between wisdom and intelligence. Intelligence is a gift from God. Knowledge is by itself inherently neither good nor evil. Knowledge is knowledge. It's what's ever true, whatever observations we have about the world. So it's not intelligence or knowledge or even oratory skill that was the problem. Paul identifies the problem as a type of wisdom. And at the root of this whole passage is this distinction between what God calls wisdom and what the world calls wisdom. And we're going to be dealing with this for a couple weeks. Remember how James talks about two kinds of wisdom. In the book of James, he says that there is a wisdom that comes down from above. In other words, what's been revealed to us from God through his word, there is a wisdom from above. And then the other kind of wisdom he describes in this way. He says it's wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's wisdom that is based in the ideas of fallen man, unregenerate man, unenlightened man. It's ideas that ultimately find their source in Satan himself. We did a study through the book of Proverbs about a year and a half ago. And as we worked our way through the book of Proverbs, I came up with my way of defining what wisdom is. Of course, wisdom is the main theme and topic of the book of Proverbs. And this is the definition that, from studying all these different passages, this is the definition of wisdom from above that we settled on. Here, I'll give you the direct quote. I looked it up in my notes. Wisdom is the skill in applying God's word to your circumstances so that you make good choices that lead to God-honoring results. Let me give you that one more time. Wisdom is skill in applying God's word to your circumstances so that you make good choices that lead to God-honoring results. So you can see that, that knowledge is certainly helpful to wisdom, but it's not the same as wisdom. Oratorical skill is helpful, but it's not the same thing as wisdom. And wisdom is based on knowing and applying 
God's word, truth as God has revealed it from heaven. And worldly wisdom then, that earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom that James talks about, is at its root a rejection of God's word as it's revealed from heaven. And therefore, it leads to sinful choices that glorify man and not God. And so that's the distinction we have to keep in the back of our minds as we look at chapters 1 and 2 as it talks about the Corinthians' skewed view of wisdom and the wisdom that they are hungry for, craving for. Verse 17, Paul says, this is the last verse we looked at last week, he said he didn't come to them preaching words of eloquent wisdom. In other words, the kind of wisdom that impresses the world, the kind of wisdom that impresses the Corinthians. He didn't come to them with that kind of wisdom. He came to them with a wisdom from above. And what resulted from his preaching of wisdom from above was a church that was built upon God's truth. And therefore, the main point of this part of the passage is to say it created a church that is always going to look foolish in the eyes of the world. That's a hard thing for us to deal with sometimes. But if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, then the world, this unspiritual, earthly wisdom of the world, is always going to look at you as a fool. The first thing that Paul says is that in the eyes of the world, the church believes and proclaims a foolish message. We need to understand that. That the world is always going to look at the message that we preach, that we live by, and that we, that we have accepted and believed in our hearts is foolish. He says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Related to the fact that there are two kinds of wisdom, wisdom from above and wisdom from this fallen world, Paul and all the rest of scripture, when the scriptures talk from God's perspective, God sees the world as two kinds of people. We look at the world and we see all kinds of different people, but God looks at the world and he sees two kinds of people, and Paul describes those two categories here as those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And that makes all the difference between what is considered wisdom from above and what's wisdom from this fallen world. Either Everyone is either elect or non-elect. Everyone is either sheep or goats. Everyone is either regenerate or unregenerate. God sees simply two kinds of people, those who are perishing, in other words, destined to come under condemnation for their sin, for their unbelief and rejection of the truth, and those who are being saved because they receive the truth. Paul refers to the same distinction in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10, when he says that those who do not believe, those who are deceived by Satan, he describes them as those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. What we're going to see as we get into this next week, when Paul gets, starts to deal with what's the root of unbelief, what we're going to see is that those who do not have the Spirit of God, those who are not born again, cannot understand the truth that's been revealed from God above. To quote chapter 2, he says, The natural person, the one who's born into this world of the same nature that we were born with, but didn't receive the work of the Holy Spirit, that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, they're foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand. Now, we shouldn't get mad at or frustrated with the unbeliever who looks at the Bible and the gospel as foolishness because it'd be the same thing as looking at a blind person and getting mad at them or frustrated with them for not understanding what blue and red and green and yellow mean. 
they are not able to understand because they are darkened in their unbelief. The gospel message in the church has been around so long that we forget how preposterous this idea was to people in the first century. I mean, to the, to the Greeks and the Romans, to, to the Gentiles, Christians followed a poor, itinerant preacher from a backwards nation who was crucified, which was the worst form of capital punishment, the worst form of execution that was reserved for non-Romans who were the lowest dregs of society. And for the Jews, the concept of crucifixion, in their understanding of the Old Testament, crucifixion meant, and they rightly understood, that crucifixion meant that, that the one crucified was under the curse of God. So how could Christians claim to follow someone who was crucified? In verse 23, Paul says that the message of the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. And the word stumbling block there is the word that we get scandal from. It was scandalous to believe that the Messiah was a crucified one. Matter of fact, to them, Paul summarizes the the preaching of the cross, the gospel message at the the center of what the church proclaims. Paul uses the phrase Christ crucified to summarize that. You have to understand that to a Jewish mindset, that's, that's an oxymoron. Two opposites put together. You know, the idea of Christ or deliverer crucified could not go together in their unregenerate, unbelieving minds. It was a scandal to them. And it's still a scandal today. And it's only going to be understood by those whose eyes have been opened, spiritually speaking, whose hearts have been changed, whose minds have been changed to receive and understand and love the truth of God revealed in his word. The gospel hasn't changed since it was first preached by Jesus and the apostles. It hasn't changed. I saw an ad for a Ligonier conference this past week, and in the ad for the conference, it just gave two sentences to describe the content of the conference. The first sentence was, what is the gospel? And the second sentence was, was Adam an historical person? And if you just read that, I know my first year, I was like, well, that sounds like two different conferences to me. <laughs> sounds like a gospel-oriented conference and then one about creation science or something like that, Genesis. But what I'm sure the conference was trying to say, and I'm sure if you went to it, this is what you would hear, is that if you don't believe in historical Adam, then that destroys the whole foundation of the gospel. That if there was not an historical Adam who committed a real historical sin that brought that curse of sin and punishment for sin upon all of those who came after him, then you have destroyed the whole foundation for the gospel of the New Testament. And the point that's being made there is that all of truth that's been revealed in Scripture is God's truth and it all hangs together. And it is going to make us look foolish. I know that if I were to drive over to campus and stand in especially any of the science classrooms and say, Adam was an historical person, I would be laughed out of the room. But that doesn't make it untrue. The wisdom revealed as truth from God or the wisdom from fallen man, that's the choice that Paul is laying before us. And we have to be willing to be looked at as fools for what we believe. 
Because as long as there are unbelievers around us, we are always going to look foolish. But Paul lays beside it the the spiritual reality of saying that the word of the cross is the power of God to destroy the wisdom of the wise. See, that's the tension we live in. Everybody around us thinks we're foolish for what we believe, but we know, because God has revealed it to us, that this truth that has changed our lives is the power of God that will destroy the wisdom of the world. It's hard to live knowing that sometimes, isn't it? Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. This is the center of what the true church preaches, Christ crucified. That the deliverer that we as sinners need had to be crucified. He had to be perfect. He had to be divine. He had to be the eternal son of God. He had to be fully human. And he had to shed his blood as a perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven. And he had to be raised from the dead to show that he wasn't a sinner, that he was the perfect Lamb of God. And he offered an acceptable sacrifice and that those who put their faith and trust in him are forgiven, are reconciled to God, are adopted into God's family and will belong to God for eternity. That is Christ crucified. That's what we preach. That's the center of our message. That is the wisdom from above. But there are buildings and organizations all over town and all over this country and all over the world that go by the name Christian that deny all of that. They don't preach Christ crucified. They deny what God has revealed to be true about the cross. And they have exchanged the wisdom from above for the worldly wisdom that will make them acceptable in the eyes of fallen man. You see, it's not about intelligence. The most intelligent people I know are in the church. It's not about intelligence. The difference between scholars in the church and scholars in the world is not how intelligent they are, how much knowledge they have. The difference is the ability to see, accept, and love the truth that God has revealed from above. We believe a foolish message in the eyes of the world, and it will always be that way. Secondly, Paul says the church is made up of foolish people. Look at verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Now later on, we're going to see that there were some Christians in the Corinthian church that actually were wealthy and actually had some cultural influence. So it's not that God never calls people from the upper echelons of worldly society. Praise God that he does. And they bring their resources and their influence with them when they come into the kingdom. But by and large, Christ calls the low and the despised in the world, as Paul says in verse 28. He tends to pull his people from the lower classes, the places of poverty, the places of oppression, the places of slavery. Because unfortunately, with wealth and influence and privilege, and often what comes with that is pride. And those people say, I don't need to be saved. 
I don't need to be forgiven. You see, the church is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. And the demographics of the true church, where Christ crucified is the center of its message, the demographics of that church reflect what Jesus taught when he said that the last will be first and the first last. When he said that in his kingdom, it's going to be the poor and the spirit, the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, and the persecuted who will be blessed. Remember that story, the, the parable of the great banquet that he told? And the people who ended up accepting the invitation to the great banquet and being received by the great king, whereas it is described in scripture, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, the outcasts, the uncool, the ones who recognize that not only can they not meet the demanding expectations and standards and criteria of this fallen world, far more importantly, they can't meet the criteria of God. They can't meet his standards. And they understand that if God is going to accept them, it's going to have to be by grace. It's going to have to be an act of mercy because no one deserves to stand in the presence of a holy God. You see, when the word of Christ, the Christ crucified is preached, when that is accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, it produces humility. It produces conviction of sin. And it produces lives that are transformed by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, he talks about how the preaching of Christ crucified came to that church. And he says, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's the true church. That's why Paul says that true believers boast in the Lord. We do not boast in ourselves. We do not boast in our religiosity. We do not boast in our righteousness. We do not boast in anything but Christ alone. Because everything that is good in us has been produced by his grace. Everything that's good in us has been a gift from him. Good theology produces humility. It's always been one of the strangest things in my experience that the churches with the best theology also struggle with pride. I've never understood that. Because good biblical theology produces great humility because it's all of grace. So, we believe a foolish message in the eyes of the world. We are foolish people in the eyes of the world. And we follow foolish and listen to foolish messengers, Paul says. In chapter 2, that's what the beginning of chapter 2 is about. He uses himself as an illustration of what he's saying. Of how God glorifies himself in our weaknesses. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And we talked about Paul standing on Mars Hill in Athens, dialoguing with the great intellectual minds and philosophers of his day. What a heady privilege that must have been for him. But do you remember how that interaction ended? He mentioned the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they laughed him off of Mars Hill. He was considered a fool. And then he came to Corinth and he took the word of God itself to those who should have been willing to accept it in the synagogue and they drove him out of the synagogue. And they took him before the civil magistrate to have him thrown in prison. And Paul in Corinth, in those early days in Corinth, was so discouraged that Jesus did something unusual. 
that we, from what we know of the life of Paul, he actually appeared to him in a vision and said to him, Paul, don't be afraid. Keep on preaching. Keep on teaching. I am with you. Those were low days for Paul in Corinth when he was there. And so he reminds the Corinthian church of that. He says, I was with you in fear and trembling. You did not believe my message because I was such a powerful speaker. You didn't believe in the gospel. You didn't accept Christ crucified because I was so eloquent and persuasive and charismatic. You accepted it because the Spirit of God is true. I mean, Paul had to deal with this with the Corinthian church. We're going to see it again and again and again. So many in that church didn't even respect him. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, Paul quotes what was being said about Paul in Corinth. It says, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. That's okay, he says. I am foolish in the eyes of the world. If that's your standard that you expect of your messenger, that he be eloquent and persuasive and charismatic, then I'm not your guy. But that's not what the gospel is about, and that's not how the kingdom's going to grow. Paul says, where is the one who is wise? Where are all those scholars? Where is the scribe? Where are the Jewish experts in the law, the, the intellectual elite of the unbelieving Jewish nation? Where are they? Where is the debater of this age? Now, they were all around, but what he's saying is, what is really the fruit of their teaching? Compare that to the fruit of the gospel. Compare the fruit of worldly wisdom to the fruit of the preaching of the gospel and wisdom that's been revealed from above. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He says, open your eyes, open your spiritual eyes and see what is true, see what is eternal, see what is lasting. Remember last week we said that there was a division over personality in Corinth, that some were saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or Peter. And this is so typical of the Corinthian culture that they lived in, is that you had your favorite philosopher and teacher. You know, we wear athletes' names on the back of our t-shirts, but back in that day, if they had t-shirts, they would have had philosophers and teachers and scholars' names on the back of their t-shirts, because that was a celebrity worship of that day in, in Greece. And Paul says, I'm not going to compete by those standards. I don't measure up to those standards, but I wasn't called to. Matter of fact, he says, if you want to compare me to the worldly standards for for messengers of of the truth, then this is the way he describes it over in chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He says, you want to measure me by worldly standards? That's how I stand up, I'm the scum of the world. But he says, we don't look at things that way in the kingdom of God. God does not look at me that way. Later on in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he'll say that God chooses to put his treasures in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We boast in Christ, not in man. And that includes in our teachers, preachers, messengers. Okay, the bottom line is clear, I hope. To the unbelieving world, 
you are eternally going to be uncool. You will be. Get over it, is really what Paul is saying here. Stop trying to measure up. You are always going to be a fool for what you believe and the one you've committed yourself to. It has nothing to do with the way you look. It might, but it shouldn't have anything to do with the way you look or talk or cut your hair. Or If it's anything like that, fix that stuff. <laughs> you are to be considered a fool because of your union with Christ by faith. In the eyes of the worldly wise, we are foolish believers in a foolish message proclaimed by foolish messengers. You know, Jesus taught us that the only acceptance that we need to worry about in the world is the acceptance of God who created us. That's the only acceptance we need to worry about. And the sooner you get that into your spiritual mind and heart, the more quickly you're going to mature spiritually. The only acceptance you need to worry about is the acceptance of God. Jesus said, woe to you when men speak well of you. In other words, if you're too popular out there in the world, be careful. There might be something, that may be a clear indication that you're striving to live by the wrong standards. You know, cool people, I've been around long enough to know that cool people are actually some of the most insecure people on the planet because they live ultimately by a religion of works. They've got the standards, and they, for the moment, they measure up to the world standards. They've got it. They're wise. They're cool. They're, they're popular. They're attractive. But you know, all that can be taken away in an instant, and they know it. They know. They're working hard every day to meet those standards, and they're demanding standards, and they're changing standards, and one day they're going to be taken away. Nobody's cool at the throne of God, in the front of the throne of God. Nobody is. Those who belong to Christ are eternally accepted by grace and by grace alone. There is no greater source of security than that. We meet God's standards of holiness. I don't care about the world's standards of holiness. Those are piddling standards of holiness. God's standards of holiness are perfection. And what the gospel of Christ crucified tells us is that we meet that standard of perfection because Christ has died to pay for our sins and he's given us the record of his righteousness. And so when God looks at me, he sees someone who meets his standards of what is good and right and true. That's a source for security in this fallen world. That's the wisdom of God. And I want to close by just reading Paul's summary of the gospel. The whole book of Romans is about the gospel. But let me remind you of how he concludes his whole argument, his whole presentation of this gospel about Christ crucified. This is how he ends it. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father, even as we claim to know the one truth, it's only because you looked upon us in your grace And you changed our hearts, you changed our minds, you opened our spiritual eyes to see what is true, to see Christ. We see him only because you have given us this gift of faith. 
And so, Lord, even as we thank you for all eternity, from the depths of our soul, for this gift of your grace, we pray that you would use us as your messengers, weak and trembling and failing as we are, to take this message of truth to those who are being called by your spirit and awakened to the truth that they might know the life we have in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.